So I would like to begin obviously by first uh, acknowledging uh, the massive loss that we all faced in the form of the death of the former Prime Minister Atal Bihari Vajpayee. Um, we also lost another great personality, uh, Mr. V.S. Naipaul, who wrote very incisively about India uh, just last week. And uh, finally, I would like to begin by saying that, you know, there's a great crisis happening in Kerala. So if we could use this opportunity to consider donating to the relief fund in Kerala, whether it's run by the CM or any other organization that you know better, trust better, whatever be the route, uh, that, would be, that would be very useful. So the topic for today that we've put out on social media and elsewhere is understanding Modinomics. Um, and I think it's an extremely, extremely important topic, obviously, as we go into elections next year. But before I bore you with all those details, I'd like to initially very begin uh, by telling you about myself. I am um, born and brought up in Calcutta. So I'm a Calcutta boy. Um, I got into uh, IIT, the Delhi campus. But I always had a lifelong love for economics. And uh, as soon as I got an opportunity to actually drop out of engineering and study economics, I, I did that. Um, so imagine I went from what was then communist-ruled West Bengal, not that it is very different right now, uh, to the state of New Hampshire in the US, which is a very libertarian, live-free-or-die state in the US, uh, from a very poor part of India to one of the richest parts of the United States at a young, impressionable age for my undergraduate. Um, and you know, that obviously leads to all sorts of ideological impact on your thinking. Um, I distinctly remember that the very first thing I noticed on maybe the first or second day of college was the janitor who we in India call the Jamadar. Uh, after doing his work, a nice, healthy gentleman went off in his big car, what we call pickup truck in the US. And I was just surprised that the janitor in the United States has a pickup truck. Um, and obviously, it set you thinking, you know, why is the situation in, at home in India back so different? Um, as it also happened, uh, when the janitor retired, he donated a large grandfather's clock to our dormitory. So here was somebody who was, not, who was at the bottom of the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid in India, who was living a very comfortable middle class life and was uh, gifting things to his uh, people who was working around, the students, you would shake his hands, you would gift him, we would wish him happy Halloween, so on and so forth. And he had a big car and he was donating a big clock to us when he retired with full pension and healthcare benefits, etc. Um, so that's when my love for economics, so to speak, became even deeper. Um, I mean, coming from Bengal, there's already enough of a contrast. Uh, and Bob Lucas, a Nobel Prize economist, he has a famous quotation. He says, is there any policy which the government of India can implement uh, which would lead to welfare? I'm just paraphrasing, welfare for the Indian people. If so, what exactly? If not, why not? What is it about the so-called nature of India that prevents such a policy from leading to growth? Because the consequences for human welfare in these questions are so staggering that once you start thinking about this, it is difficult to think about anything else. So this is what Bob Lucas said, and it kind of uh, summarizes very well my approach on this topic. Um, earlier, I was into science, engineering, computers. 
But once I kind of at an early age saw this contrast, I could not let go of this question. And you know, here almost 15 years later, I'm still thinking about that question. So I'll divide my talk into four brief parts. Um, the first part is, you know, the economic history of India. Why did we, and how did we get so poor, and how poor did we really get? Secondly, why am I really bullish about India going forward? Why do I think the damage of a millennium could be undone in one lifetime? Um, thirdly, uh, the crux of the uh, topic is Modinomics. Uh, the good governance policies that Narendra Modi's government is being is implementing will implement for the remaining tenure and if it gets another term, likely to. Uh, along with more broadly the BJP's policies plus what uh, Atal Bihari Vajpayee's government did. Uh, it set the pace, so to speak, for Modi's government and it's especially uh, appropriate moment to remember his policies as well. And lastly, what next? You know, Where has the Modi government perhaps fallen a bit short on the economic policy front? What are the challenges in the future? What does any government which comes to power in 2019 need to think of? So the first point, just to give you an idea of how poor India actually got, both in relative and absolute terms, the Indian per capita income was actually 10 to 15% higher than the British income a thousand years ago. These are the best estimates we have. By so it was 110%, let's say, of the British income. By 1500, it was at around 75, 77%. By 1600, this number was around 60%. By 1700, it was around 40%. By 1800, it was around 27, 30%. By 1900, it was around 14, 15%. And in the in the end of the millennium, the 90s, 1990s, it kind of bottomed out at six, seven percent. Um, I think right now we are back to 14-15% uh, depending on how you calculate. This is all adjusted for cost of living. So these are PPP numbers comparable over time across countries. So we went from being richer than the United Kingdom on a per person basis. I mean we were probably richer because of the number of population we had overall. But on a per person basis to being as the average Indian being as wealthy uh, as one sixteenth of a Brit. So you 16 Indians together uh, produced and consumed as much as one Brit did. Uh, and this was not just a relative decline. Definitely there was an industrial revolution which led to massive increases in living standards in the UK and the West at large. But from 1600 to 1870, the most fine data that we have from uh, Broadberry and Gupta, two scholars, is that we actually lost absolute living standards. We went from say around $700 in 1990 dollar terms to as low as 500 something dollars in the 18 in the early 1800s and there was actually what was known as strong deindustrialization in india um, in the late mughal and the early british period so strong deindustrialization means not only did the percentage of economy not only the percentage of industry or manufacturing as a fraction of the gdp fell in absolute terms manufacturing fell bihar which is now one of the uh, poorest states in india in around 1800 had 25% give or take of its population working in manufacturing of some sort. By 1900 it was less than 10%. So what we now think of as Bimaru states, uh, Bihar, parts of Bengal, East UP were actually one of the uh, relatively, not absolute terms, relatively one of the richest parts of India and at one point the world. Which is not surprising because the Gangetic uh, Valley is actually one of the most fertile pieces of real estate in the whole world. 
um, the density of Bihar today, along with Eastern UP and parts of West Bengal, is more than the density of Greater New York on a per square kilometer basis. And uh, traditionally, in economics, density helps. So the, the long story short is that we fell a lot in relative terms by a huge margin, even in absolute terms, uh, till fairly recently. In fact, uh, your parents, when they were born, uh, India had the same living standards as when Shivaji's parents, Shaji was born, around 1600. For 350 years, there was no improvement. In fact, there was a decline before there was improvement. So, so the, the, the lost millennium is, is not just in political and religious terms, it's also in hard economic terms. Um, so I think that kind of summarizes what we actually lost over a thousand years. The question next is, okay, so given that is the history and if past is prologue, why am I so bullish going forward? I think the, uh, it's obviously a very complicated answer. If, if I ask you, why do you think economic growth happens, I'll get as many answers as people there are. Um, the good news or the bad news, I don't know what to say. If you ask a bunch of economists, you'll also get a different answers. Even the professional economists have no real idea why economic growth happens. It's, um, they've done a lot of good research and we can benefit from it, but there is no consensus. So we have to approach this field with some intellectual humility. Um, so why am I bullish going forward? I think the short answer is that we have a free nation state or a civilizational state. We have a functioning democracy. Not that democracy is important for growth necessarily, but that we can correct our mistakes. We can change leaders. And by having a free state, what that does is imagine why, why does growth happen? Growth happens when, what is growth? When there is more stuff produced, more goods or services for the same number of people. That is economic growth. Economic growth is not going to solve your spiritual and psychological problems, but it will solve your material problems. So there is more stuff. And stuff ha happens amongst uh, through trade, through commerce, through investment. And if you don't have peace, then ultimately no prosperity can happen. And basically what happened through India for the last millennium was that it was a constant cold civil war. Uh, and we didn't have one nation state or one civilizational state. So, so the reason to be bullish about India now going forward, we've already recovered from the 6% of British incomes to around 15-16% now. The reason to be bullish going forward is, think of it this way. If you think of growth in terms of how many people there are, and then amongst the people, how many people are in the working age? Amongst uh, the working age people, how many people will actually work? Amongst them, how many are educated or at least literate? And then what kind of capital, technology, incentives they have? That's basically how growth happens. So demographics, technology, and good policies or governance. Demographics, technology, and good governance and politics. I'll very briefly cover demographics and technology because the crux of the talk is on policies. In this, in this case, specifically on Modinomics. Now, India will, in the next 25 years, get 350 million more people compared to China in the 25 to 65 age category. At least 350 million more people, the difference, the difference of differences will be 350 million people. India will get 250 million more people and China will lose about 100 million people in the 25 to 65 category. So this is the sheer number of people and by 2025 we should be the largest uh, country by population uh, and after that we'll, by 2030 we should be the largest country by population in this age group that actually works. Uh, some people use 15 plus but I think in today's age where most people are getting educated 
25 plus is a better barometer. So that's increase in, increase in population and increase in people who can work in that age. Next is on labor force participation. How many people actually work? In India, that number for men has been stable in the 25 to 65 group at 90% for the last many, many years. But for women, it actually fell from 45% to around as low as 30% over the last 10, 15 years and has only marginally started rising again, it's around, I think around 33% right now. So half the population is basically in that age group is basically working more or less 90% and the half is only about one third are working. Whereas in many developed economies, including China, that number is almost two third. So you can imagine if you have a 30, if you have 100 people in the work group and you know 45 are working out of the 50 here and only 15 are working, that's 60 people working there. But in other countries, that number might be close to 75. So not only will population increase and the uh, number of people who can work, the number of people who will work is finally on an upward trend. On literacy, amongst the Indian children, literacy is already around 100%. Uh, uh, men or women, boys or girls, it's a difficult number to kind of process. But this fact is already true. Literacy in India is already close to 100% as far as people below the age of 18 are concerned and it will be near 100% for people below the age of 25 by in 2-3 years. So, so we, we are entering a stage where this thing is dramatically different from what the previous generation saw. So demographics, clearly you've heard of a demographic dividend, that's a brief summary there. Then what about uh, technology? What do you think is the biggest vulnerability of the Indian growth story right now? What do you, any guesses? What do you think is the biggest weakness of the Indian growth story? Why do you think the rupee, amongst other reasons, fell uh, in the last six months, last one year? Definitely. I think oil is uh, crude imports is uh, India imports, I think, four-fifth of its crude. Um, and it's difficult to say that please don't drive cars, right? You can't tell an emerging nation that, okay, the rich people were driving cars so far, but now you will not get cars. So since you can't stop the demand, we have to think of ways to slowly replace it. Um, in, and there are also some interesting steps the government has taken. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but uh, on one hand, we have agricultural overproduction. On the other hand, uh, under the previous government, for 10 years, we kind of went slow on, um, we went slow on the mixing of ethanol and biofuels and petrol. This is a program started by Vajpayee. So you have agricultural emissarization at one hand, on the other hand, you're not kind of diverting part of the foodstuff there, sugar and so on, to mix it into your petrol and kind of reduce your import costs. So that, that's a win-win waiting to happen, happen. And I think the government is now coming out of policy to kind of double down on it. We had a target of 15% mixing, but I think we are still less than 5% in your average petrol or diesel car. So at, what is changing there is the cost of solar power as well as batteries to store solar power has fallen by around five times in 10 years. And one thing India does not need to import is sunshine. I mean, I think we, I'm sweating right now. If you just go outside, it's quite easy to see. India is quite uh, hot and sunny most of the year. Um, so the, so on a, when the sun is shining, solar power is already competitive with coal, gas, and other uh, non-renewable sources of energy. The issue uh, with uh, solar right now is the cost of storage, excuse me, the cost of storage is uh, still quite high. So what that happens is when the sun is not shining and you want to put the AC on in the night, the power has to come from somewhere. The power has to come from a coal plant, effectively in India. 
and if the coal plant has to be there for the night supply then effectively it, it is there for the day supply also you can't delete the coal plant for when the sun is shining so effectively india has uh, because of renewables and other reasons much more so, uh, power capacity than what is used even at the peak hour so so solar will continue to get cheaper wind will get continue to get cheaper but the next thing that will fall uh, the next leg that will fall that will help us a lot is when storage costs fall lithium batteries large batteries elon musk is famous for take, making a big battery in western australia which led to uh, the cost of solar falling there uh, nothing all this is not happening because of anything that india is doing india at best has now created a solar alliance with france these are global technological exogenous benefits uh, demographics is also not something our politicians have uh, really worked upon as far as i know uh, the only thing they did was they did not uh, unlike the chinese they did not kind of forcibly put a one one child policy uh, although if sanjay gandhi had been in power who knows what would have happened uh, so so there are broad reasons to be bullish on india demographics technology have covered and third we come to governance which is where the talk goes to modi nomics so what the reason i wanted to give the context was we were extremely poor we are starting a climb back a lot of the reason to be bullish has got nothing to do with one political party or one politician there are now exogenous factors but there is an icing on the cake in my view because of the uh, policies that we are now seeing so uh, modi nomics the way i'll uh, go through it is there are an orthodox set of uh, policy kind of recommendations if you want free market policies now i started a libertarians club at my college um, and so i i have been i understand the benefits of uh, free market economics uh, but on over the views my uh, over the years my views have become more nuanced and there are certain benefits to what free market economists do not necessarily agree with and which takes us to the second set of recommendations heterodox economics and third i'll quickly cover what other things the modi government has done before coming to the fourth part of the speech you know what else needs to be done so the orthodox economics the free market story goes something like this factor market reforms which is you liberalize the land market you liberalize the labor market labor laws you liberalize the capital market you have privatization and so on and so forth and that will lead to a uh, great growth happening that's broadly the uh, orthodox um, free market kind of recommendation or what was earlier known as washington washington consensus if you would go to world bank or imf for loan uh, in the mid 90s they would come to you say okay boss if you need a loan you need to do this um although of course if 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 a european country went to them they used to be more understanding and then they would not necessarily insist on fiscal deficit control and so on and so forth uh so what has happened there on on the orthodox market reforms there has been progress under the modi government but not as much as there was under vajpayee or or uh, narsimha rao so now in the case of narsimha rao obviously we had a classical uh, liberalization push there was no option left for the government we actually did get a loan from international agencies so it was basically with a bullet to your head you had to do that it was good for the country actually and it worked out vajpayee was more for reformer more by conviction uh you know indira gandhi had uh, nationalized insurance vajpayee created irdi he set the stage for in privatization and foreign investment insurance um vajpayee uh, famously privatized not just disinvested many psus um in in the labor market uh, there was not much push during vajpayee's time because that was definitely a political hot potato but on the capital market there were ma many reforms the uh, capital markets became uh, more efficient i think derivatives were introduced of various kinds 
1994. Um, what has happened in the Modi's time is, for example, in the labor reforms, it has been done in a, in a, in a very circumventing manner. For example, contract laborers have received incentives and push in the various budgets. So while the labor laws themselves have been only partially liberalized and more has been left to the states, Rajasthan has taken a lead. What, what it's now easier to do is you can hire contract laborers, you can hire temporary laborers. Um, and the temporary laborers, uh, it creates a kind of caste system in the factories that there are some permanent unionized people and there are some people who get much lower wages as well as no union benefits. But, uh, you know, it's a good second best case solution. It serves the job because people can hire and fire. So if you go to an industrialist and you say like is labor laws really a big impediment to vast manufacturing in India, they'll say maybe to some extent but not really that much anymore. Uh, on, land, on land market reforms, uh, obviously the UPA government had made uh, eminent domain or taking land for infrastructure or for private purposes uh, much more difficult but to a certain extent that makes sense. You know, you can um, agree or disagree about the exact price to be paid, uh, but property rights were basically secured. And um, whether, uh, whether we need all kinds of environmental and social assessments or not, those kind of bureaucratic hurdles can be reduced. But, you know, I, I think the government did try to dilute that act because it wanted to build a lot of infrastructure. Early on in 2014-15, Modi pushed uh, that, um, but it didn't really get much because of political reasons. And they were, they were like, fine, we'll just make more expensive roads in terms of land acquisition for building highways and expressways, and we'll just live on with it. Um, on capital market reforms, I think the government has actually done a lot of job compared to labor and land, where also something has been done. Uh, we have these new instruments like INVITs and REITs, so you can basically sell your tolled roads on the, on the listed exchanges and raise money that way, you know, circumventing the banks as well as the bond market. The bond market itself, the corporate bond market has grown up... Uh, quite strongly, partially because of the weakness of the banks, the NPAs, the non-performing assets. To reduce the NPA, which is the crux of the financing problem in India, what uh, the government has brought in is the bankruptcy law. Um, because earlier on we were just evergreening bad loans, promoters were in charge no matter how much they owed banks, and now uh, suddenly there is an actual chance of ownership change and money to be re uh, repaid to banks. In Bhushan Steel and some other examples were the most prominent example so far, but I think we are still in early, early days. So I think on, on the orthodox reforms picture, there has been progress, maybe not as much as Narasimha Rao and Vajpayee's times, but still on the whole net progress. Now let's come to heterodox list and here, here is where it gets interesting. Um, so if you go back to other countries, like the, the United States most famously, how did it get, get rich? What kind of policies did it use? when the world economic leader was not the US, but actually the UK. Um, so Alexander Hamilton, who was by far uh, the most accomplished American who did not become a president of the United States, uh, wrote amongst many other things. He wrote the Federalist Papers on politics and constitutionalism. He wrote a couple of other papers on, on banking and how uh, we should have banks in the United States and we should pay all the debt the government owns. Uh, there was a school of thought actually at that point of time that they take money from people during war in terms of bonds but don't pay them back later on. Uh, but you know Hamilton kind of put his foot down and said no we want to develop a bond market for future growth of the United States. But for our purposes uh, what is interesting is he wrote something called the report on manufacturers in 1791-1792 
uh, which actually became to be known as the American School later on. American School of Economics, kind of distinguishing it from the British School of Economics. And uh, Henry Clay kind of expanded on it later on. Abraham Lincoln was of that economic worldview. Frederick List, a German-American dual citizen, who kind of brought those views to other European countries, the continental countries, how to catch up with Britain. So the, a lot of people kind of popularized that in the 19th century. And actually, the, the steps they used is very similar to what the East Asians used, Japan, South Korea, and later China. A half free market, half mercantilistic model. It's not fully free market. It's not fully mercantilist. It's a, it's a good combination uh, if you can get it right. So what is this American school? So we had kind of three or four main issues in the orthodox, right? In land, labor, capital reform, and privatization. What are the four you know, kind of uh, steps that were recommended by heterodox economists, because now they are no longer the dominant economists, because now America, being a world leader, has a different view on economics than it had back, back in the day. So the, forced, the four recommendations were, first, build an internal market, build an united internal market with infrastructure, with transportation costs being low. I'll come to each one of them. Second, have a moderate external tariff. Third, have good financing for your businesses. Fourth, have universal education. So this was the, basically the four legs of what came to be known as the American model uh, in, in juxtaposition to the British model. The British at this point of time were focusing on, you know, deleting the corn laws and free trade and so on and so forth. So why, why these four steps and more importantly, what has uh, Narendra Modi's government done along these four variables? Very quickly, create an internal market. Uh, the GST obviously fits right therein, uh, making interstate trade easier. India has around 55% of its GDP traded across states, whereas for US and China, it's around 75%. Um, and then infrastructure. So build highways, expressways, railroads, navigable waterways. You know, the Ganga used to be navigable uh, till the 1900s, and now it's just so silted and was not desilted uh, that you know the, the rivers were the highways before the highways. And uh, for the Roman Empire, for example, the Mediterranean Sea was their super expressway, which is why they used to get wheat from Egypt uh, up to Rome and so on and so forth. So, so first of all, build an internal market that's being done. You will not find many uh, modern day American and British free market economists talking about infrastructure. But there is a blind spot there because they already have had that infrastructure ever since they have been children. It's not because of some malice or some agenda. It is simply does not register. And when I was studying outside India, I also never quite thought of infrastructure in that sort of way because you are eventually in their debates. Um, secondly, have a moderate tariff. Now, this has been very controversial in the last couple of years because Narendra Modi's government has reversed two decades of tariffs falling. So the peak tariff, I think, uh, was around 350% on, um, on manufactured goods. Uh, weighted average, no, no, peak tariff for normal goods except some exceptions. It fell down to as low as 10% in 2007-8, just 10%. So, ex so except some luxury categories, etc. For most goods, you just had to have a 10% hurdle to enter the Indian market. Um, and if, just as a point of comparison, you can read great economists like Ha Jung Chan, who have written about this, a Korean-British economist. Uh, in the United States, almost throughout the 19th century, had a weighted average of around 40% tariffs. And uh, so did many other European countries, slightly lower because of smaller economies. It was only the UK for about half a century from 1870 to say 1920, which had really zero tariffs. 
but it was it was it was the time when the British manufacturing was actually the most productive in the world, uh, rather coincidentally or conveniently enough. So imagine 10 percent, uh, and 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 shipping and containerization and uh, transportation costs as a percentage of value of weight of volume whatever you want to say is much lower today than it was 200 years ago, right? Shipping from here to California is much cheaper because the ships are much larger, much more efficient now. And before before we kind of got there, you know, made our infrastructure, made our reforms, China kind of had a 10-year lead. And China is the only other country in the world which has a continental population besides us. So what happened is liberalization happened in 1991. We 90s the growth kind of grew. But I think a real part of the growth came also from services sector, which was totally unseen by everybody at that point of time. And as far as manufacturing, like trinkets, importing trinkets for Diwali, for Holi, for basic electronics, what the kind of entrepreneurial class in India would do is they would go to Guangzhou, they would go to Hong Kong, they would go to these trade fairs and they say, Ki, boss, apne isko import karna hai. we'll put a markup and we'll sell it in India. Because it did not make sense uh, to compete against the Chinese if you simply had a 10% hurdle. So when Modi came in 2014, he first tried the more orthodox model. He tried to kickstart manufacturing, make in India. And I think at some point he realized that this is actually not working. Um, so instead of being an ideologue about it, he kind of was more pragmatic about it. Uh, right now, I think the trade with merchandise trade with uh, China is around 80 billion dollars a year, approximately, in which we export 20 billion and they export 60 billion to us. Um, so the the, the it's it's quite massive. I mean, the numbers might keep on changing month to month, and. China is an economy which is about say four to five times larger right now in market exchange terms and their manufacturing sector as a percentage of GDP is say twice. So overall their manufacturing sector is 10 times ours with great infrastructure, great economies of scale and it is just very difficult right now to compete with them. Now if they were our friend, if they were a liberal democratic country and so on and so forth, we, if we had not fought the 1962 war, we could have made a case that how does it matter whether the steel is made in India? or we just import all the steel from China. China has enormous steel overcapacity. Uh, but you know, imagine a case where you have free trade, if you go to listen to the conventional Western view, and uh, you're importing all the steel from China, suddenly there is a border issue, and the Chinese are like, wait a second, we are not selling you steel anymore. Where do you go and make your bullets from? And the Chinese did that to the South Koreans when they simply installed uh, a missile defense system against North Korea, not against the Chinese, they stopped all tourism to South Korea for about a year. So they, they have this kind of collective, they use what you can call state-led capitalism and they use it for geopolitical interest as well. So the first point was internal market, Modi created that through GST and through infrastructure. Second point, have moderate tariffs. And here I just have to respectfully disagree with people I otherwise respect a lot, I have known for a long time, people like Dr. Panagaria, who have written columns of late that you know we have taken a protectionist turn. But this is not what License Raj was in the 60s and 70s. See, right now there is full free domestic competition. It was not the case in 60s and 70s where you had to actually go to the bureaucrat and get a license to expand your capex. Uh, foreigners could not invest in India. Right now foreigners will have to pay whatever tariff they have to pay to come to India to sell smartphones or auto components. But they can directly invest in India which is why the world's largest smartphone factory came up in Noida by Samsung, not by an Indian group. So we are simply saying we'll have full competition, but can you please on the margin make in India? That's the new proposition. It's not going back to License Raj 
or isolationism or or autarky of some sort if you want to call it you can call it a neo neo swadeshi model you know it's not it's not it's not gandhian economics of villages and small scale industries it's simply saying can we make in india on the margin and we'll have moderate tariffs we won't have massive tariffs that we kind of spoil the domestic manufacturers and they don't ever have to catch up on technology it just gives them a small edge and we have to be careful there we cannot have this forever there will be lobbies otherwise there will be crony capitalism beyond the beyond the point but i think it is a very pragmatic intervention the third model was on financing and i've partially covered this the third point of the heterodox model of you know internal market external tariff and better financing partially already covered in the orthodox point on capital markets um but you know if the janthan yojana has happened and financing of savings has happened um the ibc is going through and kind of debottlenecking the financial system so i think a lot of work has happened on uh, financial markets more needs to be done i think the bond currencies derivatives market bcd nexus needs to be strengthened in india but for our per capita income compared to other countries like china we're already far ahead as far as financing is concerned we cannot go back to a public sector banking model because if you want to do that state led development then you better have your eyes just on gdp growth if you it's difficult to have those eyes just on gdp growth and be a democracy and simultaneously think in terms of winning this particular group this particular religion this particular caste and so on and so forth it's better let better left to the markets so i think good stuff has happened there fourth point universal education this is actually one of the relative weaknesses of the four years of uh, narendra modi's governance so far but if you take in more broadly on as a bjp model sarva shiksha abhiyan was uh, introduced by atal bihari vajpayee uh with a with a clear focus on uh, universalizing of education before the right to education came in and the reason that is uh, and and there also it is done very inter- interestingly the problem with indian uh public schools or government schools is uh, the teacher unions uh force salaries to be much higher than they would get in private schools if you if you go to villages if you go to slums uh the difference is 5 to 6 times between the the, te- the salaries you get in government schools and what you get in low uh, low cost private schools so what vajpay did was he introduced the concept of para teachers these para teachers were not unionized teachers they were temporary employees again similar to what modi is doing with contract workers again from the point of view of the para teachers it's not very fair because they're doing the same job and they're getting less money and they don't have lifetime employment and and union protections uh but nonetheless it's a second best solution uh, we made sure which is why right now people under the age of 25 are almost 100% literate so so the four models and again juxtapose that with what for example nehru did nehru's focus was much more on higher education for good reasons for you know we had to have a technical competent labor force for you know the temples of modern india for the bhakra nangal dams and for the iits and so on and so forth but for whatever reason maybe a caste bias we don't know primary education was never fully pushed um so so nehru in a way just on that point nehru also in a way had a heterodox approach to economics he also started off with some protectionism and industrialization what happened is two things one in the late 1950s when the rupee was basically getting should have depreciated because of a high inflation but we had fixed exchange rates in those days um because we had fixed exchange rate in those days and it was politically considered suicidal to suddenly devalue the rupee which finally happened around 1965-66 uh, during shastri and indira gandhi's time so what we did was because the rupee had effectively devalued but we had not recognized it and imports were looking cheaper and exports were difficult 
what Nehru and Mahalanobis did was they said, let's control imports. Uh, we don't want you to import a lot of machines and goods. So for, for this reason, actually, the license Raj became much stronger. It started off with a genuine point of view. Okay, for whatever reason, we cannot devalue the currency. It is not floating. But the currency is anyways getting weak. So imports are getting more attractive. So instead of doing it the right way through the currency, they basically created this massive bureaucratic super layer of if you want to import anything, if you want to do anything, if you want to expand, come to me, come to the government. And once that happened, it created its own constituency, right? A political uh, public choice theory uh, of economics, for example, tells us that basically we have to recognize politicians and bureaucrats as also self-interested. We cannot think of this abstract kind of magnanimous state, so to speak. Uh, so because when, when that happened, it was downhill from there. So by 64, Nehru dies, uh, 65, Lal Bahadur Shastri dies. And when Indira Gandhi comes to power, she finds this nexus of corruption to be quite useful for getting re-elected and for her political patronage reasons. Uh, and she doubles down on it, not, not by out of conviction. At least Nehru had the conviction of his ideas, even if the ideas turned out to be, in retrospect, bad ideas. But Indira Gandhi did not even have the conviction. She, she nationalized the banks purely for political reasons to outflank the old guard of the Congress party from the left. Uh, in the case of Nehru, it was at least ideological. He once said, you know, I don't like the Baniya civilization of the capitalist West. These are his exact words. Um, and he, and famously, he told J.R.D. Tata that, J, don't talk to me about the word profit. Profit is a dirty word. So, you know, you could, it, now in retrospect, it sounds extremely foolish to us. But from his vantage point of view, he had his own weaknesses and his own selfishness, but at least there was some, you could, you could see why he was trying what he was trying. But by the 70s and uh, the late 60s, it was very clear that we were doubling down on a bad model for purely political reasons and not actually uh, reasons of the country. So, so, so it is very important to understand why it is important for India to think about infrastructure, to think about creating an internal market, to think about at least some temporary moderate external protections and to have an educated labor force, because that has what actually made most countries rich, as opposed to directly opening the markets to full and 100% competition on day one. And finally, what are other things that, you know, the Modi government has done? You know, one way to again think about this is, you know, the father of liberalism in, in Western philosophy is considered to be John Locke. Um, but there was a figure who was more influential before that called Thomas Hobbes. And the idea what I'm trying to get across here is that before you have liberty, before you have these debates of free markets, of free individual rights and this and that, first and foremost, you need to have order. Um, you know, so there are some libertarians or some anarchists who you know, believe the state is the enemy. Uh, Gurcharan Das famously says that India rises when the government sleeps. But I, I used to believe that, but I profoundly disagree with that. You know, when the government sleeps, nobody builds the highways. When the government sleeps, nobody is running the schools and colleges at all. So there is some truth to what he is saying, but it's a very kind of glib generalization. Uh, so, so first and foremost, we need a functioning state before we can have the kind of debates of left and right economics that Thatcher and Reagan had in the 80s. Our per capita income is much lower than what the US and UK had even in the 1980s, adjusting for inflation, cost of living, everything. Uh, so first of all, we need to have roads. We need to have make sure that all the people get electricity. Because if you don't have electricity, you cannot run a washing machine, you cannot run 
uh, refrigerator and the and effectively the reality in india is the women of the house have to work inside the house and they cannot go and work outside the house if you do not have electricity you do not have roads you do not have water access you do not have something as basic as lpg access so that either you are dying out of pollution slowly because you are burning twigs or you have to waste a lot of time getting those twigs in water from outside so it is difficult for us to you know sit here in central delhi and understand what first making sure a functioning state is a lot more needs to be done in terms of police and judicial reforms uh, so that contract contracts have sanctity and so on and so forth but i think in in irrespective of what party we want to discuss india is kind of now finishing the lockean phase we are finishing the building the state and having an order phase we have the aadhar whatever the downsides may be but at least now uh, wastages of subsidies has gone down dramatically uh, since last year fertilizer subsidies are being given more and more through aadhar for example um, so we have we have a mechanism whereby we can cut a lot of intermediaries and have a basic functioning state which is completely taken for granted in all western economics so again it's not it's not that that they're doing this this suggesting certain things out of malice it is simply that is not what the lived reality is for generations so so i think that's basically what modi nomics has been it's been very pragmatic it has taken an already existing bullish trend and kind of laid the ground to create a rules based system um you know demonetization happened again whether you agree or disagree with the specific impacts of demonetization i think we'll take a lot of years to know it empirically but the psychology of people is like you know let's just pay our taxes let's formalize our economies uh, companies uh, let's try to pay by check let's not try to pay by cash if we can avoid it at least for larger operations so i think all, all kind of auctions have happened for uh, for for cell phone uh, waves uh, and 5g's will be coming soon so we'll have auctions there for coal for all kind of natural resources so we are creating a mechanism where high level an establishment a platform where high level corruption is going down more rules based system is coming in extractive political economy is getting less and more broad based i don't want to fully use the word but more meritocratic systems are being put in place a lot more needs to be done so that's the final part of the speech which is a vast topic by itself what more needs to be done whether it's by narendra modi if he gets reelected in 2019 whether it's some other person or some other political party what are the future challenges and that also allows me to get back to why we are so bullish i think one thing to think about is just like in the 90s we had a we had a positive surprise an unexpected surprise as far as most policy makers were concerned in terms of software services exports and i think which is what kind of saved the short term respect of the liberalization event uh by 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 giving us wait a second there is actually some uh growth happening uh, whereas that was not what was actually in the mind of the policy makers in 1991 necessarily i think the next stage that will happen is because of 5g which is i think unlike the other 4g 3g this time india might be relatively early on as opposed to 5 years late like always the government is already working on making sure the standards are interoperable across countries including india 5G will be 10 times if not 100 times faster than 4G speeds right now and it's not just speed it's also latency latency is actually the the, the how much data gets lost or dropped it's so it's got much lower latency it will require a lot of capex many more towers have to be built but once we get there in 4 5 6 7 years i think the next stage of outsourcing will happen um you you can read about this uh, richard baldwin has written a very good book on economic convergence 
what what is the next stage of output that will happen? So right now in in market exchange terms, the Indian per capita income is two thousand dollars. For the U.S., it's sixty thousand dollars. So there's a thirty x difference, even today. Uh, it's it's a bit lower if you take in PPP terms. It's then it's not thirty times. It's maybe nine times or ten times. Um, but as far as the person who's sitting in the U.S., if he comes to India and spends his dollars, he gets market exchange rupees. He does not get PPP rupees. So he is literally thirty times on average he or she richer than the average person in India. Of course, the median is not the same as mean. There is inequality in both countries, and so on and so forth. Imagine a situation where, because of such high speed, you can have something like Skype, but you can have 3D Skype. You can have more realistic Skype. It's literally as if I am giving this lecture, not standing here in Delhi, but in Calcutta or Chennai or maybe Boston, and it's almost as if it's a real thing. And if I can do that here, somebody standing here can do that for a classroom in New York. City or New York State, and then you do it across medical care, you do it across business management, you do it across all sectors of life. And I think we are looking at in the five seven years next stage of outsourcing. And the reason why this is important more than other ways is because now increasingly the U.S. is turning protectionist as well, you know, under Donald Trump. But I think it will continue even under the next president because they are now energy secure. Their oil is happening through shale back home. And uh, they are realizing that just what India is realizing in terms of manufacturing being hollowed out to China. So uh, it was okay for them whether, when manufacturing was going to Japan because Japan was a U.S. ally, it was a smaller country. But if it's going to China, which is, which has a much bigger population and is actually thinking of challenging America for global dominance, then that value proposition breaks down whether you're a Republican or a Democrat in the U.S. So protectionism is increasing, which means H-1B visas is also getting more and more difficult to get. And I personally don't never understand why do Indian politicians go out and lobby for H-1B visas? You know, we should actually try to keep our skilled workers at home. Tactically, what makes sense right now is maybe semi-skilled workers. So, people going to Middle East for construction jobs—that's great value addition in terms of foreign exchange earnings. But uh, I think I think it was who was the founder of Snapdeal, Mr. Raghav Bal? Uh, Kunal Bal. So Kunal Bal apparently did not get a visa in the U.S. Uh, if I read rightly, and he he was like, okay, I need to come back, and he started Snapdeal, and there are many other people. Uh, so I, I think the time to do something interesting is here, and at least the government should not be encouraging it. So so so, anyways, whether the government encourages it or not, it's going to get more and more difficult, and not just in the U.S. but in in Australia and Europe, in UK, everywhere. So we'll have the next stage of trade and commerce, which happens virtually, uh, because the. The human brain, educated in engineering and management, speaking in English, is already there in India, and the, de and the demand is already there in the U.S. If you could get a good junior analyst for ten thousand dollars in the U.S., most people would snap him like that. The problem is in today's technology terms, it happens through emails and phone calls, and there are issues of you can't see a human being. There is issues of trust and touch. So I think I think this is the next one, and if the if the U.S. government will definitely try to at some point stop this as well. Because so far their lower middle class got hollowed out by manufacturing exports, manufacturing outsourcing. But if their middle class starts getting hollowed out by uh, services outsourcing at this level, then that will produce a new level of backlash. However, India has a lot of cards to play in that. Um, Indian economy will be much larger in the coming years. I wrote an article why I think India will be a 12 trillion dollar GDP in 2030. Um, I think Mukesh Ambani had predicted 10 trillion dollars. Uh, and I personally think my 12 trillion dollar number is actually slightly on the conservative side, 
but so india will be a bigger economy by then and india has already allowed their facebooks and googles and linkedins and twitters to be in india so unlike china and these companies cannot really call themselves to be global companies if they are not in india uh, and this is true across many american companies especially in the kind of online software space which is where all their new wealth is being created in the silicon valley uh, moreover uh, uh, mr modi has made sure that the relations with the united states are better despite whatever personal way in which he was treated uh, which which takes us back to the point that ultimately all economics is in the context of politics foreign policy society and culture in fact interestingly till about 100 years ago econ economics was not called economics it was called political economy the study of economics was called political economy um, which is why frederick list the guy i had earlier mentioned who said you know have some moderate tariffs the american school of system he said maybe eventually we'll reach a point where the units of exchange is just one individual and another individual in a global cosmopolitan world but right now there is a reality of nation states nation states who are not friendly with each other who who are friendly with each other who have their own interests and the interests keep on changing so so given the reality which is likely to last for maybe at least some time for the foreseeable future uh in the indian uh, policy elites will have to start thinking in terms of how to give and take um especially with the united states when it comes to these new technologies uh we've already received a waiver for defense technology exports from the us recently which is only meant for nato uh, countries as well as japan and south korea uh we've signed the logistics uh, agreement on military to military cooperation next is communications so i think a lot of progress is happening but it will always be a bit of a testing relationship because while our basic values of being democracies our basic interests of containing authoritarian china and radical islam are there uh, nonetheless india is not like other us allies india is never going to be a formal ally india is never going to be subservient to the united states i mean if we didn't do that when we were much weaker in 50s and 60s there is no reason to do it now and the united states is not used to dealing with uh the uh, with countries in such a manner of of equal so to speak i mean there is always lip service so the the relationship will always be a bit testy which i think happened about a year ago also uh with the harley davidson tariffs and all that and trump got all agitated and just to kind of you know show that we have options uh modi did quick two quick trips to beijing and moscow uh to have personal one on ones and and then the united states again like wait a second let's come back and discuss indo pacific so 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 there is always a foreign policy and political context to economic development and choices in fact one of the things that i in retrospect it's much easier to say we we chose the wrong party even if we were not to be formal allies in the 50s by going with the united with effectively with the soviet union and not the united states um the reason why south korea and japan and even china after 1979 could progress was because they had the massive us market to export to so you have you have economies of scale you have specialization specialization in turn creates more division of labor and larger extent of the market very classic adam smith kind of concepts which leads to economic growth uh right now india is now trying what china did in 1979 and china said okay we'll break off with communist russia and nixon went to meet mao and china and uh, america became kind of tactical allies right now india is trying that with the us saying you know we'll help you outflank the chinese uh give us technological and market access so we have many cards to play in uh, in terms of uh the reason of our friendship in terms of the access that we have uh, that we want in terms of the companies that are already here american companies which are not there in the case of china 
But again, all these thought processes are very uh, heterodox. I don't think you would, in Indian policy circles, it's kind of a given that, okay, okay, we are part of global system and global system means American system. Um, but I think we'll have to be a bit more tactical and strategic about it because what technology is about to allow in terms of the next level of outsourcing will definitely face political backlash because of democracies. Just like we are a democracy, they are a democracy uh, in the West. We always remember that globalizing often helps the relatively poor in, uh, in poorer countries so long as it is done properly, you know, with all these kind of safeguards and moderate tariffs. But it is especially difficult for relatively skilled people in rich countries, um, depending on what kind of exports are happening. Um, so for there, in, there is an economics theorem about that capital wins in richer countries and labor wins in poorer countries. I uh, don't want to get into too much technical stuff there. So it, there will be a democratic backlash and we have to kind of manage it in the right way. Uh, and finally, I think for this point, uh, which has been the relative weakness of the uh, Modi government in all its successes, it has been education policy. I think the education ministers that we have seen have been uh, uh, relatively uninspiring to say the least. And uh, it's important because you know, there's, only one, um, there's only one investment that pays off even more than infrastructure in the long run and that's human capital. And uh, the problem with human uh, with in education in India is it's completely controlled by public sector unions. Whether it is at the level of schools or whether it is professor unions at the level of universities, it is a real problem. And uh, the, the problem is not going to go away. And I was, I was relatively bearish about it until I think, until I realized the uh, possibility as a supplement, not as a replacement uh, of edtech. And I think we are very, in very early, early days of edtech. But if the government can kind of subsidize and give people vouchers, not through regular schools, which is a no-go area because of various political interests that are already there in terms of unions. If we can use edtech, open university concepts, MOOCs, and so on and so forth in the right way, um, then, um, then I think we can quickly catch up not only in terms of who are right now in the below 25 age, but in terms of adult education also. People who've crossed the age of 25 for whatever reason, they got married early or their parents didn't allow it or they had to earn money quickly, but they never quite finished their education the way they wanted to. Uh, I think MOOCs and of all kinds. India has a very large enough demand there so we can take the lead and we can standardize it here. We can, we can have like this is what this credit means. This, if you do this, uh, it will be equivalent of you know, a CFA degree. This will, this will be this level and you can apply for this government job amongst other among things. So we, we can use all kinds of carrots and sticks. Um, but basically, we have to think very, uh, very strategically at the at the uh, at the intersection of education, outsourcing, and technology for the coming two three decades, uh, because I think that's where uh, the unexpected growth will happen. But this is not at the cost of traditional sources of growth, manufacturing, mass manufacturing, which India is finally kind of seeing a renaissance in, because of better infrastructure, because of moderate tariffs. Because of finally the Chinese are being forced to control pollution in their own cities, so a lot of industries which are outcompeted in India can finally enter the global market once again. And I, I, I just want to say why manufacturing is important while we go to a tech services future eventually. Manufacturing is really important because of this concept of surplus population. So as all of you know, agriculture already has disguised unemployment. Uh, for example, America produces all the food Americans need and probably exports some 
through 1% of its population. In India, depending on whatever latest number you believe, that number is at least 35-40%. So 1% of Indians can also produce the food for all Indians. The technology is already there, the large combines and harvesters and uh, semi-automated uh, uh, robots and tractors, all of that is already there uh, because you just need to go to the internet, buy that stuff and use it. The reason it's not happening right now is what will that 39% of the population do if they leave agriculture? Because they don't have the skills for it in terms of human capital right now in the short term. And we have not gone down the path of mass manufacturing and exports the way East Asia did. Because we missed out the bus because we just started 10, 15, 20 years later. Because we did not understand how to protect our markets. We kind of went from one extreme to another extreme. And now we are kind of partially correcting the pendulum and bringing it back. So, so we need an all, all hands-on kind of strategy. Uh, you know, infrastructure has to be created. We need to produce. We need to incentivize shamelessly mass manufacturing exports. Even though we'll we'll be called mercantilists by a few trading allies once in a while, we should definitely not sign RCEP in the current stage, uh, the uh, which is the free trade agreement which is being discussed with China and ASEAN and rest of the Pacific region. We already have an FTA with ASEAN, uh, with Southeast Asia. And in fact, what is happening is after the tariffs were uh, imported, just 10, 20 percent tariff support on smartphones, often they were being routed through ASEAN countries, which is actually against the rules. You need to have a value add of at least 35 percent for something to be transshipped and still be valid under the free trade agreement. But it's always difficult to enforce and difficult to uh, kind of keep a check on, and there's always a constant hide and seek there. So, so I would like to summarize by simply saying. Uh, we should not follow any policies based on ideology. We do need first principles. Uh, we do need first principles. The first principle that works is that incentives work. I think that if we just understand that incentives work, whether it comes to whether public school teachers will work really hard if their job is secured for life and the promotion is secured, uh, the answer is no. And will, will manufacturing imports uh, happen if you don't have any tariffs? The answer is again yes. The answer is yes this time because uh, there is no incentive to set up a brand new factory. So while, while understanding the power of incentives, we need to have our own pragmatic Indian school of economics, uh, which mixes, I think, the best of free market and mercantilist principles, which is suitable for us at this stage of development. And we cannot be very ideological about it and use big words that if you need any kind of uh, tariff or any kind of uh, measure which is not orthodox is therefore back to the dark days of license raj. Um, uh, the world is much more complicated than that and uh, luckily our policymakers who are right now sitting in the chair are thinking in these terms uh, and uh, not necessarily in terms of people who don't really have any skin in the game. Thank you.